It's time now for the complete story with Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Dick Bott with today's complete story. All right, well, here we go now. Are you ready? Uh, I imagine everybody voted, and if you didn't, shame on you, because you certainly should have. But then the next thing is, did you really know who you were voting for? Uh, what they really stood for. I don't really know that. I cannot answer that. But if you didn't, you certainly should have, because I know that across America right now, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of upset. But I'm talking now to the Bot Radio Network family. And while we are in the world, but not of the world, we should certainly be good citizens and do our best to uh, keep the community and keep the society in a way that's healthy for the family. But my good friend Doris Akers, who's been home with the Lord now for a number of years, she had a song that I feel I want to open this program with today. Here it is. It's a highway to heaven. None can walk up there but the pure in heart. It's a highway to heaven I'm walking up the king's highway It's a highway to heaven None can walk up there What, folks? Rich just stepped into the studio Hi. here. So good to have you join us, Rich. I did. I just stepped into the studio. Glad to be here with you. I can't believe you started without me. Well, I couldn't wait forever. Okay. <laughs> well, here I am. All right. I tell you what now, folks. Ravi Zacharias. I think most of you probably hear him on Bot Radio Network. Ravi Zacharias. I believe he's from India. Isn't that true, Rich? That's right. And his program, Let My People Think. I love that. Matter of fact, every time I hear him preach, I think, oh, man, alive. I just love to go deep and listen to him really carve it out. 
He does a good job, doesn't he? Well, he, he? does, and, and he gives such an excellent defense of the faith, oftentimes before college students and, and other intellectuals. I remember when I first heard the name of Francis Schaeffer, and he wrote a book called How Should We Then Live? I think that is so important. I want our listening audience to consider that in your own life, in your own family, in your own church community. That's a question that needs to be answered. Now, on this particular program you're going to listen to in a minute, I want you to turn the radio up and listen carefully and think as you're hearing it, because Ravi Zacharias goes all the way back and tells you when our culture in America started to really shift and change until it's hardly not recognizable today any longer. So listen to what he had to say in the next 20 minutes. I only had the privilege of meeting Francis Schaeffer once in my life, uh, shortly before he died. I was at that time a professor in Nyack, and Dr. Schaeffer was quite weakening, I think, with his cancer by that point, and he sat through his entire lecture. But I remember sitting next to him and just feeling so blessed to see that right till the last days of his journey, he was committed not only to responding to his times, but anticipating the times. If you read Schaeffer's writings, notwithstanding all the criticism that some uh, schools of thought would want to have for him, he was really quite a prophet in his times. His book, The God Who Is There, and the one on the book of Jeremiah, particularly Death in the City, which was not often read, was telling us of where we were headed. One of the protégés of Dr. Francis Schaeffer was none other than Oz Guinness. And Oz started writing very well and very meaningfully, got a hold of this manuscript. It was a talk that Guinness delivered at the Lausanne Covenant for World Evangelism in 1974. See if not what he was saying was very appropriate for then and for now. Why is there such a constant disparagement of the mind? Why is there so much appeal to the emotions? Why all this talk of souls and so little talk of whole people? Why the obvious exploitation of the testimony of the famous? Why is it so often the case that the more simplistic the message, the more sophisticated the techniques? A host of other questions spring to my mind, which we must ask ourselves. For example, why have so few intelligent people seriously considered Christ today? Can it partly be because our apologetics are too academic, too polemic, and almost completely confined to an interseminary debate among Christians? Why do non-Christians generally raise questions and see errors before Christians do? Example, the rising disquiet and the grave dangers of the commercialization of the gospel. They are not slow to notice the blatant materialism and sometimes open lies which characterize much advertising in some Christian magazines. Part of our failure to get thinking people to take the gospel seriously is born out of a credibility gap. We claim Christianity is true, a claim which is awesome by contemporary standards, but then we whittle down our claims by the patent in congruity of our practices of the truth. The way we operate speaks louder than what we say. Without the practice of truth, evangelism is in danger of becoming a giant institutional mouth, or as E.M. Foster dismissed it scornfully, poor, talkative little Christianity. 35 years ago, they could see this coming. 
And I remember fresh out of my undergraduate reading that again and again. But at that time, I just entered my graduate work in apologetics. And what Schaefer and Guinness and all were saying turned out to be prophetically true. How shall we then live? It is also interesting that on the heels of Alistair McGrath's book, The Twilight of Atheism, the atheists seem to have sprung to life again. I was with Norman Geisel last week and he said, atheism is dead, but the atheists are very much alive. And what he meant by that is that there's no new argument from them, no new philosophical counter perspective, but they're just shouting louder and they're much more strident. Having said that, let me make one other introductory comment and then move into some answers, hopefully. I've never been able to track down the source of this, but it always is a reminder to me of how we came this route. Someone wrote this. In the 1950s, kids lost their innocence. They were liberated from their parents by well-paying jobs, cars, and lyrics and music that gave rise to a new term, the generation gap. In the 1960s, kids lost their authority. It was the decade of protest. Church, state, and parents were all called into question and found wanting. Their authority was rejected, yet nothing ever replaced it. In the 1970s, kids lost their love. It was the decade of music dominated by hyphenated words beginning with self, self-image, self-esteem, self-assertion. It made for a very lonely world. Kids learned everything there was to know about sex, forgot everything there was to know about love, and very few had the nerve to tell them there was indeed a difference. In the 1980s, kids lost their hope, stripped of innocence, authority, and love, and plagued by the horror of a nuclear nightmare, large and growing numbers of this generation have stopped believing in the future. Now, obviously, Obviously, somebody wrote this at the tail end of the 80s or the early 90s. So I want to add a footnote to it. It is this. In the 1990s, kids lost their power to reason. Lost in the world of cyberspace, they have personalized objects and totally subjectivized reality. They have personalized objects and totally subjectivized reality. It is not at all uncommon on a given night for a young man or a young woman to be entranced before a machine, be it a computer or a television set, where we can get idiotized night after night <laughs> and cease to think clearly anymore. But the young person is more engaged with reality through a box than with people and ideas and relationships. It's a fearsome thing, very fearsome. My son is a techie. He's always pressing buttons. And even when we're having lunch, it's like this, you know, and I'm trying to talk to him. And I say, who are you talking to? I hope you're not in the audience because I want to talk to you and tell you stop talking to my son while I'm having lunch with him. <laughs> or just this kind of says, sorry, dad, sorry, dad. And it's always something very innocuous or just checking the scores checking whether the Braves won or not. I could have told him that before he checked it. <laughs> this kind of stuff that goes on again and again and again, but it takes on very serious overtones, very serious. It is not uncommon to talk to a father or a mother who says, our kids have cut us out from their lives. We don't hear from them anymore. We're passe. We're done. 
This is the kind of world in which we live. Now, how did all of this come about? I have traced it into the following sequence, but I want to put it side by side with the biblical narrative, okay? So let me give you six initial ideas that were presented in the scriptures. You see, when you look at the Holy Scriptures, there are three words that begin the story. Bereshit, bara, Elohim. In the beginning, God created. It is not accidental that the naturalists wanted to kill all of the narrative after that by taking on the first three words. Because they knew the importance of the peg. If you can somehow explain humanity away as a random collocation of atoms from primordial slime, here we are as thinking atoms and somehow talking morality and metaphysics and all of that, that we are here with no prevision, no pre-plan, no ultimate purpose, that we just happen to be on this scene. Imagine that. Think of the implications of that if it is true. If it were actually true that no person, no moral framework governed your existence. Not at all surprising that it would become a very lonely planet. I remember talking to a journalist the New York Times a few weeks ago when he wanted to do an interview with me on what's happening in our churches on the heels of this economic crisis. And I said to him, do you mind, sir, if before you ask me your questions, I ask you just one? He was kind of humored by it. I said, really, I'd like to ask you one because you're a journalist from the New York Times. I said, all these decades in our Ivy League schools, we trained our MBA graduates and our philosophers to believe morality was relative, that there are no absolutes, that there's really no ultimate right and wrong. You have to determine what is right and wrong. Now when they become the heads of Enron and banks and insurance companies and believed what they were taught and practiced a relativistic ethic, we put them behind bars. Why are we imprisoning them for believing their professors? Don't you think we ought to be trying their professors as well? Silence. <laughs> Silence. This disjunction between assumption and practice is the systemic breaking point of our culture today. Do you know what's happened in our culture today? I was showing this to friends last night at dinner. I'm a very wealthy man, actually. You may not know this, but I have in my wallet an authentic $100 million bill, and I carry it fearlessly. You know why? It comes from Zimbabwe, and it's expired. They're printing money there every three months. $100 million probably would have bought me a loaf of bread because the inflation rate is 500 quintillion percent per year. I don't know what that means. I just heard it on the news. <laughs> 500 quintillion percent per year where prices are doubling every 31 hours. Now, you know what's happened in the economy? We were spending money we never had. We were borrowing money without any guarantee to ever get it back. We were loaning money to people who did not have the capacity to return it. This was not done with one or two, it was done with millions, and it became payday someday, and there was nothing to be paid. What happens in currency happens in morality. You cannot live off capital you don't have. 
you will become a spendthrift from an account that is not there. And sooner or later, you will end up with moral bankruptcy. And so a television executive who phones a station to give a better view of Islam than the Westerners have ends up slitting the throat of his wife because she was going to leave him. Wonderful solution, isn't it? You can't spend what you don't have. And what is it God intended for us to have? Here are the six points. The first thing is God made an announcement in the book of Genesis and God said, God's assumption in the narrative is that he's a speaking God, he's a communicating God, he's not a silent God. He is there and he is not silent. That is the starting point of the book of Genesis. And God said, if you believe Barashit bara Elohim in the beginning God, you also believe he's a communicating God. He's a revealing God. There's an announcement. Secondly, there is a commandment. Let there be, let there be. And God is replacing chaos and darkness with order and design. Have you read any of the books on spirituality recently? You talk about one confusing mess of propagators. God brings light into darkness in the name of truth. So he first gives you an announcement, then he gives us a commandment, order and design. This is so important to understand that God is giving to us. There's a division of night and day, water and land, boundaries are set. So God institutes divisions, there are demarcations, there are lines you do not cross, there are boundaries you do not test. There is the reality of God setting boundaries. If you violate the law of gravity, you don't break the law of gravity, you break yourself and prove the law of gravity. <laughs> There's a reality that God has set in motion here. Any one of you flirting with violating God's laws, I've often said you end up breaking yourself in the process. Number four, there's a narrator's report, and so God made. In other words, you've got the revelation of God, the announcement of God, the commandment of God, the separation of God, and the summary given by the one to whom the revelation is named, and the naming process begins. Naming is a critical aspect of life. Do you know how we have flirted with renaming things? If you rename things and recategorize things, now we call it honor killing. Once upon a time, it was a brutal slaughter and murder. Now it's honor killing. We punctuate it and rename the whole thing. You may as well rename rape as a loving act. That's the game the secularists are playing. They are renaming things. By renaming, you reconstitute a reality and introduce a new concept. I'm not going to go into the things that have been renamed, but go ahead and look at the history of this. We don't like to call the child in the womb anymore as a child. It's the product of conception. And this renaming has been done by a product of conception just a little older. The naming process. Number five, an evaluation is given and God saw that it was good. The pronouncement given by God, 
that it was good. And number six, God blesses, be fruitful and multiply. You know, this is a beautiful narrative with which to begin. It starts off with the Bereshit Baralachim in the beginning. God, you move from an announcement to a commandment to a separation to a narrative report to an evaluation to the blessing of God. That's the intent of God. Now, as we came through various philosophies of life, when we went through the entire process of heresies, when the church fathers started to respond to it, and then you got the medieval times where there were all types of sectarian battles developing, each one having the corner on their truth. So you develop in the 13th, the 14th, the 1500s, the philosophy of rationalism, where truth was going to be tested by the power of reason. And Rene Descartes came out with the idea that rationalism is it's the ultimate form of testing truth, but he could not test that itself with the rationalistic process because it was self-referencing. And so he started off with his existence. For me to doubt my existence is to affirm my existence. And therefore, you know, I think, therefore I am. He really ought to have said, I think, therefore I'm a thinking thing. That's really what he ought to have said. But rationalism began to hold sway in the academy. Reason, reason. And it became such that mathematical certainty and rational certainty within dubitable precepts was the only thing that people would cling to. But then they found out that you could not have rationalism with an uppercase R dictating everything. There were things like love. There were things like philanthropy. There were things like ethics, which rationalism alone could not ultimately dictate. So they started moving in different directions. We came up with the philosophers who were empiricists. Empiricism started off with the corner on science, that science is an empirical discipline. You put this and you put that and you warm it over in a beaker and they put in the litmus test. If it turns red or green, you have established what is present in the components there. And empiricism became the watchword for truth in the scientific realm. But science gradually encroached upon all of reality and the empirical sciences want to have a solid sovereignty over every discipline so that the only one who ultimately has sway on knowledge is the empiricist moving on from the 17 to the 1800s. So rationalists tried to hold sway. The empiricists came and countered. You've got people trying to find middle ground between the two. And in the 1900s, existentialists were waiting to be born, caught between the tug of war between the cerebral and the empirical or the senses. The existentialists said, wait a minute, what does that make of my will? What does that make of my passions? What does that make of my feelings? I'm like an entity hurled in this universe. I only have a will. I have passion. And so the existentialists came into the scene with willing to express your passions for the now. The existentialists didn't worry about the past. They didn't worry about the future. It was the willing for the moment for the now. The cerebral side of rationalism took one end of it. The empiricists went to the senses and the existentialists came and said, you guys are not talking about me. You guys are talking about some professors of philosophy or some lab technicians. You're not talking about me. I'm a feeling passionate entity and I have no meaning. And it is meaning that I ultimately am looking for. And so the existentialists started to write on the search for meaning, the search for meaning. You've got the cerebral, you've got the sense driven, you've got the passion driven. What was left? Postmodernism, which said none of these boys are right. 
You make your own universe by changing language. It's not the author that matters. It's the reader who determines what the text actually says. So in the beginning, God said, now in these twilight years of civilization, doesn't matter what God said, you become the God of God. That's basically what Deepak Chopra has done in his book, The Third Jesus, which I didn't buy. I took it from a library. (laughs) What he says, there was a historical Jesus. We know nothing about him. That's fascinating. And yet his book is punctuated with scores of verses that sustain karma, enlightenment, and yoga. How does he know any of this if we don't know anything about the historical Jesus? So the first Jesus we don't know, historical, Second Jesus, the Jesus of salvation and the uniqueness manufactured by the church. Now comes the third Jesus, which Chopra is going to give to us, who found enlightenment on his path, a la Deepak Chopra style. That's it. So the rational debunking went into the empirical. The empirical went into the existential. The existential went into the postmodern. Make your own gods. We are a God manufacturing culture. Now we make India look tame compared to the gods we've made out here now. At least with India, they had the temples for it here. We don't even need the temples. We just got bookstores. I tell you what, Rich, that was a very sobering That was a very sobering and yet very correct uh, kind of a thing for us to listen to and process. What say you? Well, he said something that really caught my ears was when he said we are living in the twilight years of civilization. Man alive. And what an important time for us to shine the gospel clearly and brightly. I tell you what, shine the gospel and explain to the people the principles that come into a person's life and their family and their expectations as they live according to God's Word. And that's the key, the power of the Word of God. And I keep being drawn back to the fact that the Christian community, those who know the Lord, Mm -hmm. I mean really know the Lord— They are to be the salt and the light of each community, each town, each state. And I'll tell you, it's not working out that way. And the Word of God is the solid rock upon which we can build our life. Of course, that's Ravi Zacharias. Let my people think his broadcast can be heard at 8 o'clock Saturday morning on most of these Bot Radio Network stations. He's on all of the Bot Radio Network stations, but on most of them, it's Saturday morning at 8. Now, what is the phone number that people could call to let us know what they think? The listener (laughs) comment line, we'd love to hear from you, is 1-800-345-2621. 1-800-345-2621. Give us your comments. And you know what, Rich? This is our 56th year this month. That's right. During the month of November is our 56th anniversary of Bot Radio Network. And we are keeping the main thing, the main thing, and we're never going to stop. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is Dick Bot with my son Rich. This is this chapter of the Complete Story as a public service. We'll see you later.